everybody. It's Wayne with Mark and Areed, and we are so excited that you've come to watch the Eat Community Podcast. We know you're going to enjoy it. We actually did it live originally on our Eat Community webinar series, which we also invite you to come to, but you will love this podcast that you're going to be listening to right now. All right. Thank you, everybody, and thank you for joining uh, today's webinar. So I am Brian Vag. I am a Soul Food Up advisor, and I'll be the MC for today's webinar. Uh, let's go ahead and just cover or just go over the topics that we're going to cover today. So uh, we're going to have some Soul Food Web professionals, uh, myself included, just kind of give you a background of who we are, how we got here, uh, just you know, kind of teeing up and allowing you to get to know us so that you can ask some questions of us as well. And then obviously, uh, Dr. Lang Ingham is going to, uh, you know, be present in this call as well. And so we'll, we'll kind of talk a little bit about uh, Elaine and where she's coming from. And then uh, we want to discuss some of the foundation courses that we have. So this is the Soil Food Web courses or the school. And uh, we'll kind of cover, you know, what's in those courses, how do you get access to them and so forth. And then what we wanted to do is end with is a Q&A with um, Elaine and the team here as far as what are the questions that you may have around the soil food web um, and we'll do our best to be able to answer those and let's talk about kind of the rules of engagement so everybody in the, the meeting and I have zoom meeting sorry this is the uh, uh, webinar go-to meeting, uh, but we, you'll, you'll come in in muted mode, so we won't hear you, you know, it keeps down the background noise because there will be quite a few people on there. Uh, but if you do have a question, please go ahead and uh, click the questions button and type it in there. And again, we'll have moderators that will be monitoring and selecting questions for review. And I'll go ahead and read those questions off and then we'll do our best to answer those questions. Okay, so let's do an introduction of the Soil Food Web professionals that are on the call today. So uh, the first is myself. So again, I am Brian Vank. I am a Soil Food Web advisor, and I have a company called Sprouting Soil. So you know, how did I I get here? What's my background? Um, well, my background is that um, I have worked in the high tech industry for most of my adult life. I was a you know computer science major worked for large high-tech companies but my passion or my hobby has always been um, you know growing food in fact uh, my wife and I we uh, purchased a homestead about 16 years ago and with the goal of trying to raise and uh, grow food for our family so that uh, you know we can eat really healthy food and both my wife and I came from homesteads we grew up on them um, but we we you know we basically ran our homestead in a very conventional method. We used fertilizers, pesticides, herbicides, all that kind of, you know, junk. And I wasn't very happy with the results I was seeing. It seemed like every year I was having to put more inputs in and the costs were going up. My production wasn't that good. The quality of the food that we were producing wasn't that great. And I moved into or started researching about permaculture, you know, the design science. And it started to turn our homestead around but it still didn't answer the whys for me why was the plants doing so much better and i read a book from jeff lowenfels called team with microbes and uh elaine had written the foreword to that book and in fact i didn't even get into the book i read the foreword i was like oh my gosh this sounds just exactly what i'm looking for i looked up lane on online and saw a bunch of different youtube videos and from that time i was hooked and so you know we started to 
understand or, or learn about the soil biology and the soil food web, and I went ahead and took the foundation courses from Elaine, and then um, transitioned that into the consultants training program, and I became a soil food web advisor. And today I have a a business that um, I'm working with farmers and transitioning them from conventional or conventional organic to biological farming. And it is extremely rewarding. Um, I feel blessed that I'm able to do this type of work. And I look forward to being able to convert more and more acres from bad farming practices to really good farming practices that you know support human life, but also the greater ecosystem around us. So that's kind of my, my journey and how I got here. Um, I also want to introduce to you uh, Keisha and Casey. So Keisha and Casey, do you guys want to give a little background about yourself? All right, we're hey. muted. Hey, yeah, everybody. we can see you guys. <laughs> Hi, Casey. So um, we are actually at the very, very end of our uh, of the um, consultant training program. So we're working on our very, very final project right now. Um, we started a business about a year ago when we finished the online courses. Um, it's called Catalyst Bio Amendments. We're a mid-scale compost producer here in Northern California in Grass Valley. Um, yeah, and. We kind of started our journey in southern Ecuador, same as Brian with the Jeff Lohenfeld book, uh, reading that introduction and teaming with microbes. It's like, I don't know, it really got us all captivated into this whole idea of working with biology and getting interested in what's going on in the soil. And uh, we spent a lot of time reforesting a project um, there in Ecuador and making compost and just seeing that sometimes it was working, sometimes it wasn't working and just not sure why you know so it was really cool to stumble upon these courses and actually get the tools and to identify what's going on and actually see why sometimes it's working and sometimes it isn't working because there's those microbes in there are super important and when you can get them in the right balance you can really see how how they can make an outstanding effect and change um, to to the projects that you're working on <laughs> exactly Great. Anything else you guys want to mention about yourselves? By the way, their compost is fantastic. <laughs> I use it, my clients use it, and it is really, really good stuff. So it more than meets the, guys. Yeah, more than sure. meets the minimum uh, requirement for biology. So good stuff. I, I guess I could see that. That's that's why we started the uh, the compost company so early was um, we couldn't find any product in our area to actually do our final project. So <laughs> we started yes. a compost company so that us and all the consultants in our area have something to use to uh, regenerate soil with. So it's been a fun adventure. <laughs> Thank goodness you guys have done it too because before I could find good compost really to the scale <laughs> that I needed for my clients. So I I'm. Super happy. Yeah. Unfortunately, <laughs> most of the places that claim to make compost, they're making putrefied organic matter, which yeah. is not going to grow plants. So compost has had developed a pretty bad name in the, certainly in the academic world, you go and, and read scientific papers and 50% of the scientific papers say um, compost will kill your plant. The other 50% is compost is the best stuff in the world. Wow, it just really was amazing uh, because that was actually properly made compost. So we're, right. it's, it's left with this, you know, consumers just 
they don't know how to get the good stuff or how to figure out that this is good or this is bad. And that's one of the things we answer for people in the online classes. Um, how do you know that something has the biology in it that's going to uh, benefit your plants or it's putrefied organic matter and it, it's going to kill your plants? Exactly. Yep. We'll give you the tools. All right, we have one more consultant, and unfortunately, Nick, I didn't get your slide in in time. So, Nick uh, Tomasini, he's another soil food web advisor. So, Nick, do you want to just give a brief introduction, uh, you know, to sure. your journey, how you got here, and, and who you are? Sure. Can you hear me okay? We can. Okay, good. Uh, my name is Nick Tomasini. I operate Humankind Oregon LLC out of Portland, Oregon, and I've been a soil food web advisor and consultant for the last couple of years. Um, working with a number of different crops as well as compost producers, um, some ecological restoration projects, uh, a little bit of cannabis and hemp as well. My story goes back to the early 2000s when I was in school at OSU studying ag economics and horticulture. Uh, Elaine was actually a professor at Oregon State University at this time and I was getting really into organic gardening and was actually able to buy compost from Elaine back then and was just seeing some amazing results. Um, and that kind of coupled with not being satisfied with the curriculum that um, was being taught to me via OSU, you know, I, I knew there were, there were answers out there that weren't being provided uh, to us as students in that program. So um, there was, you know, it, it started early that, you know, I was on a quest to figure out how this organic thing how this biological farming thing actually worked. And so it was a number of years until I, I came back around and studied with Elaine and, and really learned how to identify microorganisms and interpret data and modulate those microorganisms in a number of different um, scenarios. So, you know, in the meantime, I had been an IPM field scout for a fairly large scale operation uh, in the Willamette Valley here. Uh, I'd been an organic farmer and a research assistant for OSU, for a soil scientist there for a couple of years. Um, and I've been operating as an independent organic inspector and consultant in that realm for coming up on eight years now. So I've just been in agriculture for a long time and I've seen a lot of people um, make a lot of missteps and um, I knew there was a better way. And through training with Elaine and, and Soil Food Web School, um, I learned some invaluable tools to help farmers really think about their soil and their production in a different way. And um, it's, it's just such a fulfilling thing to be able to help people achieve these goals in this way. Um, and probably one of the better decisions I've made career-wise. So, Agreed, I agree with that. <laughs> I second yeah, that. Catalyst does make amazing compost. You know, I make some compost in Oregon uh, with farm clients, and then I work a little bit with a vermicomposter, but certainly Catalyst Bio Amendments fills the void for me um, through certain times of the year. So it's true. They really are making some great material. Thanks, Nick. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thank you, guys. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Okay, well, that's uh, the Soil Food Web Professionals, and last but definitely not least, we have Dr. Elaine Ingham. So, Elaine, did you want to just give a brief uh, introduction to yourself, those folks out there that uh, may have limited knowledge about you? Yeah, um, I've been working in this area of uh, Soil Food Web. Um, what are all of these organisms, the bacteria, the fungi, protozoa, nematodes, microarthropods? We, of course, 
don't identify necessarily to genus species level because we don't really know what each individual species does. We are more gen interested in setting up the conditions in the soil so that the beneficial bacteria, the beneficial fungi, protozoa, and nematodes are functioning and working. And of course, that's taken a, a, a lot of my career to, to um, get this far and really understand and then be able to diagnose and indicate what and how to get the organisms back into the soil that your plant requires. So I grew up in Minnesota and when I was six years old, my dad being a veterinarian, he used to take me out on farm with him. And so I learned about um, a lot about agriculture, not everything, absolutely. That's, uh, can't learn everything along with all of the um, other academic things I've been doing. But he sat me down at a microscope when I was six years old and said, count the E. coli. And from that point on, I think it, he really had me hooked on trying to understand what the biology is in soil and why are those organisms there and what do they do. When I went to Colorado State University to really uh, focus on soil to do my PhD at Colorado State University, my major professor had me go around to all the soils related people, the um, agronomists, the um, crop scientists, the uh, bot um, botany, plant physiology, um, departments go and talk to the horticulturalists, all those people who were should have been associated and understood what soil really was. And whenever I asked them um, what important role or why were these microorganisms present in the soil, what did they do, every single one of them said, they don't really do anything. They're, they're not important. You shouldn't do a PhD on these organisms in the soil because they're, you're going to get out and you're, you're not going to be able to get a job because nobody thinks that these organisms are important in any way. But the work that my husband and I did um, for our PhDs proved otherwise. So the very first paper about the soil food web, and you can't look at just bacteria or just fungi or just any one of these organism groups, you've got to combine them. It's working together that they have the overwhelming effect of improving soil health and thereby improving plant health. Um, get, get nutrient cycling going. You don't need inorganic fertilizers. You don't need pesticides. You don't have to worry about weeds because as soon as we start to improve that soil food web, Nutrient cycling happens the way nature has always been doing this. Nature's only had nutrient cycling happening with plants the way they do now, the way it's supposed to occur for the last billion years. Mother Nature has had more than enough time to perfect it. Uh, we human beings just need to stop thinking that poor little old Mother Nature, she doesn't know what she's doing, and so we've got to <laughs> come along and help her. Um, wrong. We've yeah, destroyed. Exactly. <laughs> We've destroyed the very um, resource that we have to have in order to keep healthy people happy and alive on this planet. So learning all of those things, all of that information is summarized in the foundation courses. So foundation course, and I think if you go to the next slide, Brian, yep. we have the main points 
in each of the courses. So course number one is where we go over the op overarching principles of why it's so important to have these organisms present in the soil. The bacteria do these functions. The fungi do these other functions. Um, they go hand in hand. The ratio of fungi to bacteria determines where, what kind of plants can grow and will outcompete everything else. What is that life that has to be in the soil so you can grow tomatoes in the same place for year after year after year after year after year? We have growers where they've been growing tomatoes in the same field for the last 20 years. And no reduction in yields, no increase in diseases. So if you really understand what this biology does for you, you can get rid of all these expensive amendments that you have to put into the soil. Get the biology going. The only time you have to put some more organisms out there is if there was some fairly catastrophic event that killed these organisms in your soil. And so now you've got to kind of start over. So don't ever let those catastrophic events occur in your soil. Um, and then you can keep the money in your pocket that you used to send off to the chemical companies. So all of the important um, processes that are actually done by microorganisms in the soil. When you go back to the father of soil science, for example, Hans Jenny, he defined soil as having, yes, the mineral component, the sand, the silt, the clay, the rocks and pebbles and things. But if all you have are those mineral components, that's not soil, that's dirt. In order for it to be soil, you have to add in the microorganisms that perform the processes for your plant of cycling nutrient, building structure, allowing oxygen and water to move deep down into the soil so the roots of your plants can grow deep. And then you don't care about whether the late summer period becomes dry or not. Those plants will be able to stay alive and finish the process of producing seed without you having to do a lot of expensive inputs into the system. We want to make certain that we select against weedy species. So that's all making certain the fungal to bacterial ratio is correct so that your ammonium to nitrate ratio is correct. Weeds require strictly nitrate. True weeds are strictly nitrate dominated. And so you get rid of those problem plants by controlling the balance of fungi to bacteria, make certain, certain that the balance is right for the plant you're trying to grow instead of being right for growing weeds. And so weeds become a thing of the past. So you can see the whole list there of um, what, the, what we're gonna be teaching you about in that soil food web, the, the principles, the theory. Now we wanna go on to the practice. You know, there's always this, Wonderful dichotomy between theory and practice. And so now we want to make certain that you can actually make compost that contains all of the organisms and that you know how to go in and take samples and make sure that it is your biology, that that's correct for the plant that you want to grow so you can get these organisms inoculated. It's both the biodiversity of each organism group. Is it adequate? Do you have the right biomass so that the balances of all these nutritional factors of 
all of the soil building of all of the things your plant requires in the soil will actually be able to establish and grow in your soil. And then of course, a lot of the times a solid compost is kind of expensive to get out. Um, you've got to have some big trucks, big equipment, perhaps if you've got large acreages, isn't there an easier way to get these organisms out? So absolutely, we're gonna take that compost that's got all that really good biology that you've grown during the process of composting. You're gonna extract those organisms and you can apply them as an extract or you can add some foods into that extract and start to grow those organisms for application to the foliage of your plants so we can protect the above ground parts of your plants against the diseases and pests that attack the foliage, where we can set up nutrient cycling on the leaves themselves and provide some of the nutrients in that fashion. Sorry, Len, can I just interrupt you there, please? I think some of the some of the attendees can't see the image on the screen. Is there a way to make it a bit bigger there, Brian or, or Mark? Can you advise on that? Sure. Let me see if I can do this. Yeah, I, Sorry, I always man. have to. I always have to get up real close. Close. Yeah. Let me see if I can <laughs> zoom in a little bit better. How's that? Is that looking any better there, everybody? Is that easier to read? I hope so. Oh, it's it's oh. easier for me. Let me go back. I went uh, too far. One second. Let me go back. Let me reduce this down again. I just don't want to go full screen because I'll lose everything. Um, all right. I'm driving crazy here. Reckless driving over here. Sorry. Well, I'm, I'm going to keep going because we're going. almost yep. done with this slide and then we yep. can move on. In the fourth course, we're going to teach you this really important tool for monitoring whether you have the right biology, is the balance of fungi to bacteria right? Um, do we have all the indicators of aerobic conditions in being present in that soil? Or are there indicators of the organisms that grow under anaerobic conditions? You start seeing those anaerobic organisms take over you lose your fungi, you lose the structure, and your plants are going to be in trouble. Roots of plants are obligate aerobic organisms. So you can't allow that soil to go anaerobic. You can't allow compaction to occur. And you know, I love the fact that the USDA back in the 1950s defined soil as only going down four to six inches. And the first time I ever saw that definition, it was like, what planet did they come from? Because it's certainly not the planet I know. My root systems on my plants go down 10, 15, 20, 25. I start working in orchard trees. Those root systems are down at 100 to 150 feet. When we deal with conifers, the root systems can be down as deep as 250 feet. So where did this come from? It's because of compaction. The tillage that was promoted in the chemical agricultural system imposed that compaction layer. And of course, if you restrict your root systems that are used to going down, you know, five to 25 feet, and now you restrict them to four, five, six inches, of course they're going to be unhealthy. Of course they're not going to do well. Of course they're going to be stressed. And the diseases and pests are going to try to take over. Mother Nature's trying to send you a message when 
diseases and pests hit your systems. Mother Nature's saying, hey, pay attention. There's something wrong. You're trying to grow these plants in dirt and they have to be grown in soil. So we're trying to teach people how to do this conversion. And the microscope is your easy way to determine whether you're moving in the right direction or do you have the anaerobic signals still left in your dirt and you have to keep working to convert into soil. So this is the four courses, the four foundation courses that we like to have people take so that you've got a firm background. You really understand why you're doing things. It's not just, well, do it this way because I said so. No, nope, that does not work for me at all as a scientist. I have to know why. I have to know how we're going to fix it. And so we've got all of that kind of system together for you. Yeah, Elena, to... I just mentioned that, you know, I, when I took the course, I really appreciated the fact that you focused in on the the theory, you know, the understanding why life in the soil is so important. And then we went to the practical because it made the practical application so much more involved. I mean, I, I understood why I was doing the things I was doing in making compost or compost teas. And then the microscope course just really wrapped it all up. It gave me the tools necessary to be able to make those kind of observations. So I love the format. Yep. Great. So should we go on to the next slide? We should. We okay, so um, Luke, did you want to take over on these? Yeah. So let's introduce Luke. Luke, you want to give an introduction to everybody? <laughs> Hi, guys. Yeah, my name is Luke. I'm um, the director of operations at the school, and I'm going to talk to you a little bit, <clears throat> excuse me, a little bit about the format of the, the training program. Um, as I hope you can see on the screen, <clears throat> I hope it's not too small, but um, there are basically two um, steps in the program. The first is the foundation courses, which I hope you all know um, we are running a promotion um, on the FC, on the foundation courses, which ends at midnight tonight, uh, Pacific time. Um, if you haven't already um, um, been made aware of that, then please go to our website, soilfoodweb.com. Um, and right at the top, there's a button that says save $1,600. Um, and you can click on that and go through and find a coupon, which um, you can use to save $1,600 on the foundation courses. Um, but what I basically want to talk about is um, the fact that we've got two stages to the, the, to, the, to the training program. The first is the FC, which is, as you can see on the screen there, it's theory-based. It's um, online. It's self-paced. And it consists of 65 lectures and quizzes. Um, you can log in at any time and take those at your own at your own pace. Um, so fit around your own schedules. Um, and um, then the second part is the consultant training program, which is where you'll be challenged to get all take all the theory from the foundation courses and put that into practice, working on a piece of land making the compost, making the liquid amendments, the, the extracts and the teas that Elaine was just talking about, and then applying all of those in the final project to the land and um, quantifying the, the changes that you'll see using the microscope, um, using the penetrometer, using various other tools that you'll be trained to use. Um, the, the CTP, the Consultant Training Program, is a mentored program. 
So from the outset, you will be assigned to a mentor who will guide you through each of those three stages in that program. Um, and um, you'll be able to communicate with your mentor um, uh, online via Skype or email. You can, you can arrange meetings with them as and when you need them. Um, and they'll guide you through those three stages. Um, we get a lot of questions about, you know, how long does it take to complete this and, <clears throat> and all the rest of it. But um, the, 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 the short answer is typically it takes students around about 18 months to two years to get through everything. But we do have a, a record holder who completed everything in under 12 months. And that's Brian Varg, our MC today. Well done, Brian. I'm not sure how you did it. <laughs> yeah, so it is possible to, to get through everything in 12 months. So, um, yeah. But we, um, allow, we allow everyone to go at their own pace. And I think that's a really important thing to emphasize yeah. here is you don't have to have everything finished in two, two months or three months. Um, for the FC courses, we give you a 12-month access to the foundation courses if you need to take longer come back and talk to us we're not ogres about this with the consultant training program and i actually like to think of it more as a the practical training program you don't have to go on to be a consultant but certainly if you want to be a consultant then take the consultant training program but it's really great to have mentors who have been making compost for years and growing plants under these conditions, um, get, working with you and helping you through the process of exactly how do you apply the theory to practical conditions. Just one question on this point just came in from Ursula. She's asking the question, um, if you sign up for the FC, does the CTP come as part of that package? And it doesn't, unfortunately, Ursula. The CTP is uh, an additional $3,000. and just kind of FYI, we, we run that program at a small loss currently, um, but you, you do get um, something like 56 hours time with your with your mentor, and our mentors are typically either PhD biologists or people who've been working out in the field for several years. So there's a lot of um, valuable interaction that you'll get with your mentor. Um, and just one last thing, that, that there is an FC forum, as you can see on the left hand side of the page there where you can ask questions of um, Dr. Ingham and other faculty members. There are also monthly webinars, as you can see on the left there. And on the right-hand side, you can see there's a CTP forum, and that's a great place where you'll be able to interact with um, all CTP students and alumni. So people like Brian and Nick, et cetera, um, are on there, and you'll be able to ask them questions as well as obviously asking questions of Dr. Ingham and the faculty again. Yeah, and I, I'd second the importance of the forums. You know, it, it is a great communication vehicle, and I feel like I'm connected to, you know, so many different folks worldwide. If I got a question, I just post out to the forum. Um, so it is a really good vehicle for us to just gain more knowledge. You know, I, I feel like I just know the tip of the iceberg, and um, I, am, I want to know all the iceberg, but it's going to take me a long time to do that. I'll never get there, but um, the forum definitely helps me out as far as being able to get more knowledge. So. It's a great, great aspect. And then we right. also have um, advanced classes with the consultant training program. So we, we recognize the fact that we're adding more knowledge all the time and that we've got to stay up to speed on communicating um, the new discoveries. 
And so that's what those advanced classes are for, is to dig in a little bit deeper on the newer information coming through. Exactly. And there's a lot to know, you know, what types of equipment are out there. Equipment's always changing. Uh, so that's an area that, you know, we're always, you know, very concerned about. What's the new pumps? What's the new microscopes? What's the new, you know, yada, The yada, latest yada. and greatest injector <laughs> that's out there. And exactly. When are we going to automate that so you can just drive through your field and inject as you drive along? So, exactly. All kinds of interesting things. Yep. For sure. Okay, um, I think we've already kind of talked about the promotions, but we, again, we want to thank everybody for attending the webinar today. We're, we're definitely not done yet. We've got a lot of Q&A we ought to get through, but we want to make sure this is up on your screen. Um, and again, uh, like Luke said, go to the website. There is that the, the, the promo that we're running. And I think that's the coupon code right there, right, Luke? December That's correct, yeah. Uh, for, anybody, yeah. for anybody that doesn't already have the coupon codes, you can just copy that. It's DEC1600FC. And if you go straight to the website and click through to the, the foundation courses and click on sign up, um, then that'll take you to the, the checkout page where you can use this to uh, reduce the price by $1,600. Uh, once again, that offer is going to end um, at midnight Pacific. What's that, about 13 hours from now, something like that? Yeah. Yep. A little over Stop. 12 hours. Yeah. All right. Well, I say let's get to Q&A, all those burning questions that you guys have. So well, I want couple... to put yep. a plug in for our website. There are some really great animations that help people understand some of the theory uh, pretty quickly. You get a gut level understanding of it if you watch those animations. I think there's four different ones on some of the major points of what this biology does to allow you to grow plants without pesticides, without inorganic fertilizers, without any need for toxic chemicals or herbicides. So at the very least, go to the website and enjoy some of those animations. And then sign up for the foundation course. They're on the How It Works page of the website, guys. Yeah. I'm glad you mentioned that. I, all my clients, I, I send them those links. Go watch this. Okay. Uh, so we've got a few questions in here. Um, we've got uh, Jiang uh, Dung from uh, Nigeria. He has a question uh, to Keisha and Casey. And it's, please, how can you improve nitrogen, phosphorus, and calcium? Oh, I just lost the question. One second. It's potassium, Brian, NPK. How can yeah, you improve NPK you. in organic in, uh, soils? Well, so I think that's probably a question good for Elaine to start off with. Yeah. Um, because when we're dealing with organic matter, so the materials that we're putting into compost is com made up of plant material. So we, we've got to have you know, various quantities of woody materials and green materials and high nitrogen. So we have a lot of all of those nutrients present in that organic material, but it is only the microorganisms uh, bacteria and fungi that decompose that material and then hold all of those nutrients in their own biomass. So think about the fact that bacteria are working on plant material that has a C-to-N ratio 30 to 1. So focused on nitrogen here for just a few minutes. C-to-N ratio 30 to 1. But a bacterium has to hold so much more nitrogen per unit biomass because a bacterium needs to, cannot operate unless its C to N ratio is five to one. So when that bacterium is decomposing plant material, it's got to concentrate all that nitrogen 
into its biomass. So no nutrients are going to be lost as that organic matter is decomposed. And all of that carbon may be blown off as carbon dioxide. Fungi are a lot more conservative on um, carbon than the bacteria are. So when we're trying to sequester carbon, we need to be growing fungi, not bacteria. Because fungi don't blow, out, blow off the carbon as CO2. They lay down, down those carbon contents um, on the inside of their hypha. They get thicker and thicker walls, higher and higher C to N ratio, the older that hypha gets. But the C to N ratio of that um, fungus is typically around 20 to 1. So the fungus still has to concentrate nutrients. Fungal foods are wide, uh, wide C to N ratio. So example, wood has a C to N ratio perhaps of 300 to 1. So that fungus has to exit. It's got to put away all that extra carbon in order to concentrate nitrogen. Well, the same is true for potassium and sodium and zinc and chloride and calcium. That um, fungus is going to be holding on to the, all of those nutrients. Now, we've got our bacteria and fungi. They've got all the nutrients in them. So now what has to happen to make those nutrients? How do we convert them from organic forms into the form of those nutrients that your plant can take up, the soluble inorganic forms? So the protozoa come along and eat the bacteria. The bacterial feeding nematodes will eat the bacteria. The fungal feeding nematodes eat fungi. The fungal feeding microarthropods eat fungi. And when they are consumed by their predators, there's way too high a level of nitrogen, phosphorus, sulfur, magnesium, calcium, sodium, potassium, iron, zinc, all of that. So that that excess is released by the predator right in the area around the root, exactly in the form that your plant requires. And so the plant takes up what it needs. We don't have to be adding back nutrients into our soils because every second of every day the sand silt and clay is being replenished in your soil the bacteria and fungi are heavily breaking down rocks and pebbles and larger stones and boulders and everything else constantly releasing more of the small sizes the sand silts and clays in the crystalline structure of those sand silts and clays there's a massive amount of those different nutrients and the values are going to be a little bit different when you're, when you're dealing with a granite or you're dealing with a basalt or you're dealing with some other parent material. But they are very high concentrations. And you can go into almost any agronomy, any soils textbook, and look and see the massive amount of carbon or calcium, sorry, calcium or zinc or nitrogen or whatever nutrient you want to talk about that's actually present in the sandstone clay. We somehow got, because the biology was destroyed probably in these soils, we got to the point of view that the total nutrients that are present in soil aren't accessible. We can never touch those. So we're going to have to put in soluble inorganic fertilizers in order to make up what the rest of the soil should have been providing. Well, all you have to do is put the biology back into the soil. And now that whole massive quantity of nutrient is available to your plant. Your plant is actually what puts out the exudates to feed the bacterial and fungal species that it needs to make the enzymes to grab those nutrients out of the crystalline structures, the, 
uh, you know, the silica bilayers in your sand, silt, and clays pulls those nutrients out, exactly what your plant ordered. And then here come the protozoa nematodes, eat those bacteria and fungi, and voila, your plant has the soluble nutrients that it requires in the proper balances, because remember, it's not just nitrogen. It's phosphorus, sulfur, magnesium, calcium, sodium, potassium. All of those nutrients are being released in the proper balances for your plant. And so your plant is never stressed. It's going to have all the nutrition it needs, and therefore your food tastes the best. You're getting the most nutrition from that food, and you're getting beneficial organisms that you're going to consume when you eat the surfaces of that plant, uh, plant material, and you're going to replenish your gut microbiome at the same time. So isn't nature, nature amazing? <laughs> Mother Nature has worked a long time on working out all of these interactions. And yet, because we had no way to measure bacteria, fungi, protozoa, nematodes, microarthropods, earthworms, and spiders, and all those larger critters in soil, we disregarded them. They're not important. They, they, they're just there. They Don't worry about them. Don't do your PhD on these things because you're not going to be able to get a job when you get out. <laughs> You know, one of the things I, I tell a lot of my clients, uh, Lane, is, um, you know, they're focused on growing whatever the crop they're going to grow. You know, if it's vines, if it's, you know, annual crops. And I explain to them that really, you know, your focus should be become a microbe farmer. That you, you want to make sure that, that your focus is on the soil, soil biology. And the plant is already made all those evolutionary connections with the plant. It They thrive in those conditions. Yep, and so put back in the nutrient cycling system that your plant expects that it needs. This nutrient cycling system was put together long before plants with roots ever occurred on this planet. So plants with roots expect the nutrient cycling system to be there. And I'm sure they get very surprised when it's not. And they get handed a boatload of high salt concentration, um, high salt materials like um, nitrate fertilizers or phosphate fertilizers or sulfate fertilizers. And the poor, poor plant is probably just, oh my gosh, what do I do? What, what happened to the normal nutrient cycling system that's supposed to be out here? <laughs> we need to put it back. So, exactly. yep. Okay, um, let's move on to another question. Um, so the next question is my question from Janine is how much does it cost in equipment to get started in a business? So I can probably field this one and then Keisha and Casey and Nick, um, you can probably answer along with this as well. You know, I, it really comes down to where your focus is going to be. And, you know, you could uh, be just a, a lab where you're just doing soil assessments and where you have a microscope and a table and your equipment that's associated with that. It's probably under $1,000 to, to get started. Um, you could get into producing things like compost teas and extracts and have a spray rig and that may cost a, a couple thousand dollars for your brewer and maybe you have two ten thousand dollars for a sprayer a rig that you would tow behind and so forth and, and you know it doesn't need to be that large either it could be something much much smaller um or you could be um you know into a large scale where you're having hundreds of clients you're doing lawn care and you need a lot of trucks and equipment and so forth um and it might be you know more expensive in that sense and what I guess I'm truly trying to drive to is that there are a lot of different 
areas that you can apply your expertise and how you want to groom your business and those costs will vary so it could be something that's very small upfront startup costs to something that's much larger i know Keisha and casey you guys from a composting company probably have some, some different uh, <laughs> expenditures um, right it, it costs uh, to get that started yeah I in my in, yeah just let me a little insert in, in sure. my experience when i go to work for large cons um large scale you know, 300,000 hectares or uh, 100,000 acres or something like that. I'm not buying equipment to go do that work on their land. Right. We're going to take their equipment and maybe a slight modification. So like we were working with a, a grower in Pennsylvania and he had to modify his planter so he could be putting down a compost extract and not plug his... Um, you know, the little, where the drip came out of the compost extract that went down right in front of the seed. So on his five or six different uh, planters, large scale planters, he had to spend $10,000 total to, um, you know, adjust. And as a result of putting out that compost extract into the ground, he increased his yields by $3 million. And what he had to say to me was, that was a, uh, that was a good return <laughs> on investment. So let's keep doing this. And so he yeah. just expanded the acreage and, you know, so uh, you're not the one who has to buy somebody else's equipment for them. Um, you're just going to get them to modify it if even that's necessary. Okay, Keisha, back to you. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I was going to say um, with making compost, it can be as simple as just having a, a shovel and a pitchfork. Um, you can make compost at home, but when you get into making compost on the scale that we are and then above this, um, it, it's really expensive. I mean, if you look into tractors, you look into turners, I mean, it could easily cost you a couple hundred thousand dollars um, just to get just to get started. And then um, I'll just say from experience, like we're just dreaming bigger and bigger every day. So I'm not going to get into figures, but it's almost limitless what you could spend <laughs> on uh, the type of equipment that we dream of every day at the lot. <laughs> yep. So it's, it's all scale. A scale, um, exactly. You can start out really small and sell to um, neighbors, to landscape people. You, you don't have to make tons and tons and tons. But then as you make money, then you can reinvest it. And now you buy a small turner. and Now you can make two or three windrows that are 100 feet long. Um, and then once you've accumulated, so it, it's a bootstrapping system. You don't have to start out with a million dollar loan in order to get going. Um, unless you've got someone chomping at the bit and saying, no, I want you doing this for me right now. And then you say, well, then give me a million dollar loan and I'll, I'll go ahead and do this. Yeah. And so far, you know, my business has been paying for my scale. You know, I started off small and as I got clients, I upgraded my equipment and keep on upgrading my equipment. So at this point, my business is funding that, that scaling up of my business which is a good thing. I'm not having to take any loans out. So it is definitely possible with, to do this without taking out a loan. It keeps your taxes really low. Yeah, it sure does. In fact, it's yeah, great right now, my taxes. <laughs> we were able to start with just using people's tractors, you know, and, um, and, and same, like as we go, the business has funded it the whole way, so. I agree hey, with, 
yep. with the larger scale clients, for sure, you know, we're, we're trying to work with their equipment. Oftentimes there are modifications that need to be made or upgrades like Elaine had mentioned. Um, but, you know, she really does teach people how to think outside of the box. And, and sometimes, you know, you, you got to get into the, the sort of gearhead mentality and figure out how to modify something um, for the successful delivery of microbes and survivor survivability of microbes. But uh, I think in the beginning, you know, you're going to need a microscope. You, you're maybe going to need a compost tea brewer, perhaps, you know, some a little bit of equipment to apply those uh, on a smaller scale if that's where you end up starting. And so, I don't know, maybe a couple thousand dollars for for those sort of basic um, tools. Like everybody has sort of pointed out, uh, you can grow the business pretty quick um, with, a, with a fairly small inventory of equipment. Yep, great. Okay, um, I have another question from Janine here, which is, have you had any problems with Monsanto and chemical fertilizer companies running a business? Um, when I was a professor at Oregon State University, I had quite a bit of trouble with Monsanto and um, you know, notice that I'm not a professor at Oregon State University anymore and mostly it's because I ran into that, that large chemical company um, bias where Monsanto didn't want anybody um, suggesting that genetically engineered organisms could be dangerous. And we were working with a genetically engineered organism that, if released, could quite reasonably um, have killed terrestrial plants, all terrestrial plants. I'd say that was very dangerous. You can make things that are just insanely dangerous when you start doing genetic engineering and you have no idea about the interactions of organisms in the soil and just how deadly it might be. So yeah, we, we ran into the Monsanto problem quite early on. But at this point, you know, Monsanto doesn't exist anymore. It's been taken over by Bayer and um, Bayer is running into so many lawsuits and problems economically that, um, yeah, they're kind of busy, kind of too busy to pay attention to us. So we need to use this opportunity to, to um, get going and be well established if those chemical companies ever can return to making the billions and billions of dollars that they that they were making one, at one time. Yeah, they seem to be on their back foot right now, so. Mm -hmm. They do certainly seem to be modifying organisms for use in agriculture with a bunch of new startups right now, which is kind of scary. Um, yeah. If you look close at sort of, you know, the mechanisms they're trying to put into these chassis organisms, they're not needed. You know, um, nitrogen fixing, nodule forming bacteria. There are all kinds of different organisms that can fix nitrogen. They're trying to tailor them to this crop or that crop, but it's just unnecessary. And I guess they're going to have to learn that the hard way. Yeah. Yeah. Where hopefully everybody learns that it's a waste of money. Um, exactly. Putting one species of bacterium out, all you have to do is have one summer where it's not the perfect. Um, set of environmental conditions for that species of nitrogen fixing bacterium and you get absolutely no benefit. So how many times is that going to have to occur before a grower says, forget that. The problem is for us, the people buy biology like that one or two species in a mix and put it on and they say, nothing happened. It was a waste of my money. Um, that biological stuff doesn't work at all. 
well, that's why we're trying to get this massive diversity back into the compost and extracted into the water, the um, tea, uh, grow a lot of these things in, in order to have this massive diversity. So there's always going to be at least a thousand species of bacteria or fungi that are going to be able to do this job. And then it doesn't matter what the weather is like, what the specific conditions of this summer actually end up being because we've got those thousands of species that will operate under any environmental conditions that, that come along. And they see the tides turning, you know, that's why they're doing this kind of yeah. development. So go figure, um, you know, they're, they're free. You can generate them yourselves. And, you know, the Soil Food Web School teaches how to do that. Yep, yep, yep. Okay, let's move on to another question. This one's from Francesco, and it's, hello everyone. Maybe a question to all the present consultants. How was their first step into the market after finishing the CTP? All right, so I'll go ahead and start that one off. You know, for me, you know, my first client actually was um, the what I used as a project into the CTP. I reached out to a local market gardener here and said, hey, look, I'm doing this consultant's training program, and I need to go through and do um, a project. And I was wondering if they'd be interested in allowing for me to be able to do that project on their farm. So they gave me a couple rows to do biological. They had the rest of us, you know, kind of control. And you know, they saw the results and they were very excited. And so for me, it was my first project, actually was kind of my first client. Uh, but I would say right after the CTP, I found that going to the local farm organizations, you know, farm guilds, farm groups, and asking if I could, you know, give a talk for 15 minutes or to an hour to talk about, you know, life in the soils and the soil food web. And that really helped give me some exposure to some additional clients. Uh, and then from there, it was either word of mouth or I've gotten referrals from the um, the, the Soul Food Web School uh, website. So that was my experience. Um, Keisha, Casey, Nick? Uh, I, yeah, I guess, I mean, for us, it's been, you know, like we started off small and we were kind of nervous about, you know, how we're going to get our product out to people and how we're going to sell it. And it has been, we have not advertised once and it we're sold out constantly. Like we don't really have to talk to people to, you know, to spread out that message, you know, like people get a, their hands on the compost and it's all spreading by word of mouth. So it's, it's been, it's been nice, you know, it's easy for us to get into the market and you know, it's the product sells itself. Yeah. I would say also, um, to be honest, the reason that we're not finished with our classes is because <laughs> we've got to work so quickly that now I have, you know, four or five jobs uh, that I love working with microbes. And I just, it's so silly that I, we're just sitting at the end so busy making compost and looking at microbes under a scope that we haven't graduated yet. But um, <laughs> it, it was easy and it was fun. <laughs> yep. Hopefully you'll grow to a certain size and be able to hire people, and then you can finish yeah. your um, certification. These, these webinars are really motivating for me, Elaine. I'm, I'm going <laughs> to That's funny. How about you, Nick? Um, you know, I'd say after I finished, after I got the certificate, you know, became an advisor, um, I really focused heavily on, on microscopy for a long time. And so I had a lot of people sending me samples and, you know, I was looking at just different ratios and different kinds of organisms and different kinds of soil from kind of all over inside of this country. Uh, and then inevitably, 
you know, you're going to get questions about how to interpret that data and, you know, what kind of action item can, can be generated from what we're seeing here with this data. And so I just spent a lot of time um, trying to figure out uh, ways to help those farmers and, you know, what those numbers and ratios meant to me. Um, and of course, you know, I needed to see those organisms at work uh, to really boost my confidence. I think most people need to see things for themselves and, and that's how it was for me too. So uh, inevitably, some of those clients that I was doing uh, microscopy uh, quantification interpretation for, um, they wanted to have me out on site so that we could talk about these things further. And so then I traveled word of mouth, sort of like everybody has said, um, I, I really don't do any advertising whatsoever. And uh, I receive a lot of emails on a very regular basis just from being listed as an advisor uh, on the Soil Food Web School uh, website. Yeah, second that. Okay. And I apologize uh, if anybody has emailed me and I haven't gotten back to you. I do feel And there's a little trouble in, you know, we, the holiday season. So shoot me another email if I haven't. Yeah, if you do. yeah exactly. Okay, we have another question from Janine, which is, uh, does this course address compacted clay soils, et cetera? Absolutely, it, yeah, yeah, because it, yes. compaction <laughs> of any kind. Um, I did, you know, we usually use a penetrometer to establish how deep into the soil these different compaction layers um, are present. And, you know, I usually get the question of, well, the USDA says you only use a penetrometer when you're at, you know, 15% field capacity or, you know, whatever it is. And I just kind of roll my eyes at that one because I want to know every week, if I've got the time to do that, I want to be out there measuring that compaction, those compaction layers, because we're going to add the biology to make certain that they rebuild that structure and the bacteria and fungi, protozoa and nematodes, microarthropod earthworms, all those critters are all doing part of the job of rebuilding that soil structure. So are they done yet? Um, I don't care what the moisture level is in my soil. When it's really, really wet and your soil is waterlogged or close to waterlogged, um, all the minor compaction layers aren't going to be detectable because you're penetrometer just um, zips right on through. But you'll hit the major ones. You'll know where the really bad ones are at that you have to start getting rid of or you're not going to have any of the benefits that we're talking about if you don't get rid of those compaction layers. Um, you know, if you've got a compaction layer that forms in the summer where the surface of your soil turns into concrete, there's something terribly wrong with your cation exchange capacity. You've got problems with your um, calcium-magnesium ratios, and we've got to get the proper biology in the soil to fix that. And your plant will fix that problem for itself, except that you have to put in the missing organisms. You wouldn't have concrete forming, basically, that layer, compacted layer at the surface of your soil if you had all the biology present and you were taking care of it right you got to get the organisms back in there. So how are you going to do that? Um, well, compost, compost tea, compost extract, what's easiest? And we help you figure out how to do that. So um, you can pretty easily turn these things around. So yeah, we are measuring compaction all the time. It's a good indicator to tell you when you're finally gotten through that stage of regeneration of you know, replenishing the biology in the soil, 
and now you go on to the next steps of really getting that fungal to bacterial biomass ratio balanced correctly. You've got the protozoan nematodes, you've got the microarthropods present in that soil. So that uh, what I always like to say to growers is really what I want to see you happening, what I want to see happening, what I want to see you doing is that you get that biology into the soil. So in the springtime, you just put in a furrow, drop your seeds in, cover them up, and go fishing for the whole entire summer or on vacation or you know spend the spend your summer in the lake having some fun and then you come back and harvest and if you get the biology right that is what will happen where you don't have weeds you don't have pests you don't have problems uh, you still want to take a walk or two through your property just to make sure that you know there's no area where airflow is being restricted that is typically where problem organisms are going to start and so make certain that you have more than adequate coverage of the leaf surfaces above ground to make certain that all parts of your plant are protected so yeah compaction and then how do you fix compaction you don't fix compaction by putting in lime and gypsum that's such a short term trying to make something disappear. And it's not something that could ever possibly solve this problem forever and ever. You have to get the biology back into the soil and that will solve your problem forever and ever. For as long as you maintain that biology in your soil, you won't have those calcium-magnesium ratios getting unbalanced. Your plants will make certain that the right sets of organisms are present to not succumb to those kinds of problems, calcium magnesium ratios. And work that we've done where we have added lime and gypsum onto one plot and right next to it we put the biology out. You know, both sides, uh, pH on the soil was down at about 4.5. Um, the calcium magnesium was way out of whack, magnesium way too high, no calcium or very low levels of calcium, yes, you've got a huge problem. So you come in and you put on your three tons of lime and your half a ton of gypsum. And then we were monitoring what was going on with um, the compaction layers, with uh, movement, water fil infiltration into the soil, things like that. Um, on the other side, we put the proper biology, the fungi got going, the bacteria were doing their thing, protozoan nematodes, yep, nutrient cycling, getting all the proper balances of all of these soluble nutrients and um, a week two weeks after we applied both sides the pH on both of them had come up to 6.7 6.8 in that range great so both of them were working both biology as well as lime and gypsum were working after two weeks Good. this looks great right came out two weeks later the pH on the lime and gypsum side was back at 4.5 the compaction layers were back as bad as ever. So yeah, they we neutralized the acid problem. We neutralized some of the problems, but it only lasted for something less than two weeks, three weeks or four weeks. So it's not a permanent fix to play games with pH, to play games with soluble inorganic salts. Put the biology back in, and as far as I know, those clients have never called me back up and said that you know the it's it's run out it's over what do we do next as far as i know 
and I'm pretty sure they would call me and tell me, uh, get out here and fix it if, um, if it wasn't still working. So the chemical approach to fixing these kinds of problems is a very limited, short-term turnaround. As soon as the anaerobic bacteria and fungi get going again, they're going to be neutralizing all that lime, all that gypsum, all that pH effect, and their organic acids that are being produced under those anaerobic conditions are going to drop that pH right back down, and the compaction starts again. Okay, did I beat that one to death? Yeah, oh, you got it. <laughs> I think you nailed it, Elaine. <laughs> okay, we have another question from Annie. Um, curious what the market demand is currently like for a soil consultant. So I think it depends upon your area, for sure. Um, and I think you heard from all three of us, uh, the soil food advisors that are in there today, that uh, you know we're not marketing. I mean, we're getting clients. In fact, I'm I'm pretty fully booked. Nick, uh, how about yourself? I mean, it sounds like you're constantly busy. I'm in the same boat, yes. Yeah, and Keisha and Casey, we know they're busy with the compost because <laughs> they're selling their stuff out. So, you know, I, I think, we, you know, things that I would recommend is if, if there's not um, a lot of perceived to be market demand in your area, like I said, go to some of those farm guilds, start giving some talks, start, you know, getting the message out there and you know also farmers talk with the other farmers if they are experiencing hey we don't have the water problems that you're having or the pest problems or your production's much higher uh, those things gain the attention of the other farmers so um, i would say the demand is is potentially huge you just need to pretend you know go in there and kind of um you know stir up some of the interest just by getting some knowledge out there and then from there, it, it tends to go. Uh, Nick, Keisha, Casey, Elaine, any other comments to that as far as the demand? I like to put out um, demonstration plots. Mm -hmm. Now, as you start making compost and now you're starting to put that into the soil, get the biology established, have um, demonstration plots where you're growing your vegetables, you're growing whatever um, expertise you have and let people who drive by on the road outside your property, let them see just how amazing and highly productive. If you've got a neighbor across the street that's chemical, it's a great comparison because then people driving by are, are, are saying, what did you do? You put on double or triple the amount of fertilizer? Uh, how come you didn't have grasshoppers eating everything? How come you didn't have aphids? How come you didn't, all these different problems? And you can say, come on in and let me show you around and we'll talk about how I can help you to do the same thing I have. And there's the proof that we know how to do it. Yeah. Nick, Keisha Casey, anything else to add? No, I don't think so. <laughs> okay. You've said that All right. Right. Yeah. Let's get on. You have the passion to do this kind of work and you go through these classes and, and you learn how to do it. You see it for yourself for the first time. Um, there's, there was really no looking back for me. Um, I had finally found what I had been searching for for so long in terms of, you know, how does this organic production thing, this biological farming thing really work? So if you go that far and you can see it for yourself, like Elaine was saying, maybe in a trial or a demonstration garden, and you show others, um, I, think, I think you're in it to win it. I think you're in it for the long haul at that point. Yeah. 
like I said, it has not been hard for me to find clients at this point. It um, has actually been easy. Most clients are coming to me versus me actually having to go out there and get clients. So, and it's the fact that we've that we teach people why this works, yeah. not just a magic bullet. It's not well. Trust me, when we put this um, green slimy stuff out there, it'll work. Trust me. You know, that's I know myself when I get in contact with somebody who's making those kinds of statements just trust me well you know I I put this out on my yard this year and everything grew 10 times better okay where are your controls because yeah. maybe the weather was perfect, perfect. <laughs> yeah it was great and that's what caused everything to grow 10 times better than last year I, I want those control and treatments so um, chemical guy across the street good that's my control here's my demo look at the difference and yeah. it speaks for itself. And I like to do that anyways with my a lot of my clients, especially new clients, is, you know, they have to transition, um, you know, from their conventional to biological, but then also the, all their management practices need to transition as well, which is let's put in a trial plot so that they can see and observe and see how they want to be able to change their management practices. And the seeing is believing. Um, so, yeah, it, it's, it's, it's there. Um, I said we move on to another question. So we have another question from Rebecca, and it's why is it important? Oh, hold on a second, got new questions coming in. I gotta scroll on down. Okay, for this is from Rebecca. Why is it important to dilute the microbial tea? Is concentrated tea bad? Um, no, not at all. You can certainly put out straight tea if you want to. If you if you feel like your soil is really really dirt and you've got a lot of resuscitation, a lot of replenishment to go, you certainly can put out straight tea. But usually you don't have to be putting out that much at one time. Um, and that's why we're, we're not really diluting it most of the time because when we're talking about, um, you know, dependent on the organisms that are actually in your um, straight tea, um, or your straight extract, you want to get one or two gallons of that out on this acre. That's a typical normal application rate. How do you take one gallon or five gallons and apply that evenly over an acre? <laughs> Not happening unless you just happen to have one of those um, special um, helicopters that we sometimes work with when we're um, working on wheat fields in Australia. But most of us, small scale people, don't have that kind of equipment. So now how are you gonna manage to spread this one gallon or two gallons or five gallons of straight tea? How are you gonna spread it evenly over this acre? You're gonna put it into 200 gallons of water. You're gonna take your tractor and your sprayer and you're gonna go out and apply that and move across that one acre so that you're just finishing up applying that 200 gallons when you get to the end of that field. So it's not really a dilution. Water is the carrier. It's, we want the right amount of organisms per acre in order to start this conversion, in order to get things going. And so you're gonna be putting that tea into your carrier of water to spread it evenly over whatever area you want to spread it over. 
Hope that makes sense. Yep, I think that's a great answer. Okay, we have another question from Benjamin, which is, how about further management? Will a conventional short rotation grower need to incorporate multi-species leguminous cover crops to fully bring soil health? Or is it possible to keep maize wheat type rotations just by themselves? Where would the nitrogen come from in these settings? Okay, so we would um, like to have other plants in the system rather than just your crop because we want to maintain that soil food web through the times of the year where you don't have a crop in the system. So, you know, you plant your wheat early in the spring, you harvest it in August, and now you've got September through till April or May of the next spring where you don't have any plants growing in that field. Mother Nature abhors bare soil, just absolutely anathema. She will put something in there and she will get it growing. And now how are you going to get rid of it? So let's start aiming for either mulching all the time and maintaining a mulch layer so you've got a weed barrier of some kind. Well, yeah, but that's a lot of work. Um, a lot of times I put a, a mulch layer out and my microorganisms in the soil have decomposed it and it's gone in three months. So you go back, have to go back out and put on another layer. And I don't know about you guys, but that's a lot of work and I'm not interested in doing a lot of work. I'm one of the world's laziest gardeners. So I want to... Efficient. That's efficient. Maybe, yeah, efficient. I want to be, I'm, I'm the most efficient. Whatever. <laughs> so I want to put in low growing understory plants that have the same ratios of fungi to bacteria or close, similar, so that my crop plant is going to be supported with this low, short, understory set of plants. And that's where my diversity is actually going to be, where I'm maintaining those um, interactions between the microorganisms and the plant. All my critters below ground have an alternative source of food other than just your crop plant. Come springtime when you're going to plant your uh, seed in or you're going to plant your starts in, you open up a wide enough furrow so that your cover plants aren't going to be able to grow back rapidly and shade your crop plant as it comes up. So how wide do you want that furrow to be? Is it going to be two inches or six inches or nine inches? You know, sometimes you just have to do a trial. So that's sometimes where I will suggest maybe you want to start in these small areas and see how your cover plants actually work. It's like one time we um, were using <laughs> micro clover. It wasn't supposed to grow more than maybe an inch, two at max. And so we put it in, we opened up our furrow, put our um, crop plants in. I don't remember exactly what it was, but I think it was like corn and and tomatoes and things like that. And um, well, there were some beets and there were some carrots as well. And we had everything nice and tidy, beautiful looking um, on Friday when we left and went off to enjoy ourselves during the weekend. We came back on Monday and we couldn't find the beets. We couldn't find the corn because that micro clover had completely overgrown it. 
So when you have really good biology in your soil, um, you better know that this plant is not going to take off on you like that. I can't recommend clover as an understory set of plants because it likes to overgrow other plants. Now, orchard trees, not a problem, but you know, so you've got to think about these things. We want to have nutrient cycling going on all the time. As long as you have sand, silt, and clay within your soil, you have more than enough nutrients. So don't worry about we're going to suck all the nitrogen, phosphorus, sulfur, et cetera, out of your soil in this one growing season. As long as you can reach your hand in the soil and you can document that you still have sand, silt, and clay down there, don't worry about it. You just have to worry about your biology. You need to have these organisms pulling the nutrients out of that sand, silt, and clay with the enzymes that they make and then being eaten by the protozoa, the nematodes, microarthropods, et cetera, making those nutrients available to your plant. So until the day you run out of sand, silt, and clay, you shouldn't have to worry about inorganic nutrients. So have you ever met anybody who's run out of sand, silt, and clay? And until the day you do, stop worrying. Exactly. <laughs> and then we just will grow everything on pure organic matter. Matter. Because <laughs> you can have a really good organic. I love to put like four or five feet of compost with really good structure. Okay, if you don't have good organisms in that uh, putrefied organic matter, it's all going to collapse. It's all going to go anaerobic. It's a horrible mess. But if you've got good biology, that structure will remain. And you can grow some of the most incredible crops where you have a large component of organic matter. I don't even send soil chemistry tests into my la into the lab anymore because all they end up doing is going, oh, oh no, you've got 25% organic matter. You have to get rid of the excess. And I just roll my eyes. <laughs> uh, if it's real compost, it's you're going to grow the best yields you've seen but it's got to have the biology in it. You've got to make certain that uh, you've replenished what that plant needs. Okay. Okay. I think that's great. Yep. Uh, we have a, another question from Lucine, uh, which is I work in Amsterdam in a school garden. We are planting or planning to put about 700 meters cubed green compost in the soil, about 10 centimeters thick to improve. We have a lot of weeds and we do not till for four years now. Is this a good idea or do we need to make our, our compost ourselves? I would um, get hold of Tanya Decker, who is um, the Soil Food Web consultant in the Netherlands. She lives down in Delft and she can work with you um, by uh, remote, um, if you've got a microscope with a camera on it, she can help you do all of the readings that you need to take of that compost. And then once you mix that compost in, what's happened over time so that you can answer these questions with absolute certainty that yes, you're going to do really well or uh, let's let's make a compost tea for you out of some of this other compost that we know has all the biology and you spray that on the surface you use it as a foliar spray as well so really close to you and I know Tanya would love to interact with you and help you out Tanya actually works at uh, the botanical gardens in Delft um, that's where her job is so she definitely will be able to help you with this Great. 
Okay, um, we have another question from Jaiwa, and it is, what is your opinion about composting feces from farm animals, domestic animals, and even human feces? Why not? Once the bacteria and fungi have done their job of decomposing the manure, those wastes, it's not manure anymore. All of the disease-causing organisms will be outcompeted. We don't ever detect um, things like E. coli, Salmonella, Shigella, Pasteurella. We you just don't have those organisms left in a properly made compost. That's why we try to get really clear with people about here's what you need to do. Temperatures have to reach above these levels. It has to be above those temperatures for a long enough period of time. You have to turn a pile um, at least three times. And we've got research projects going on where we're going to be publishing some of this data that we can show people that if you compost properly and get all of this massive diversity of bacteria and fungi and protozoan nematodes in the system, um, pathogens aren't a problem. We take care of them. Uh, that manure isn't manure anymore. It's humic acids, it's fulvic acids, it's um, all the different kinds of proteins and carbs and uh, amino acids and it's all these other things. It's it's not manure. Think about the fact that any soil on this planet was once inside an animal of some kind and they pooped it out and it got into this you know ran, got into the soil and uh, was decomposed and regenerated and now it's the apple that you're eating or yeah, you, know, you don't want to take this too far because then you start gross, grossing people out. All my carrots, once upon a time, were <laughs> elk poop. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Nature recycles things. It's not the same chemical composition. It's not the same problem organisms present after it's gone through a good composting um, process. And how do you tell if it's actually gone through the composting correctly, look at the microorganisms. You have a really good idea that there are no anaerobic conditions because you see no anaerobic organisms in that material. Send a sample into a um, um, microbiology lab and ask for an E. coli test, and there will be no detectable E. coli. I don't like the current set of regulations that USDA, FDA, all EPA require because they allow 800 E. coli per gram. And well, it's below that level where the E. coli go into that signaling process and they start producing the toxins or the Salmonella, Shigella, excuse me. Um, e. coli is just an indicator organism. So, um, We've changed it. It's different. It's not harmful to human beings if you follow directions. And so we try to get people, that's why we have the practical part of what we do, where you have a mentor who helps you figure out how you actually manage to get the bacteria and the fungi and the protozoa and the nematodes and a good diversity of all those things. How do you tell whether you've got good diversity? Where you want to be seen lots and lots of different sizes and shapes of these organisms. And if you're over, you know, 20, 30 different kinds of bacteria and fungi that you can see are clearly different species, then you've got the diversity. So, yep, 
have some fun yeah, on know, the foundation courses. And I think that's the important thing. You know, I think a lot of people's experience, you know, at least mine before coming, you know, to, to this was, you know, compost. You throw some stuff into a pile, you maybe turn it once or twice, you come back six months later, it's kind of broken down, you can kind of use it. Um, you know, when we talk about thermophilic compost and making good compost, there's a process to it. You know, it's it's very prescriptive. You have time, temperature, moisture, all those things you're measuring and you're monitoring, and then you're using that data to help tell you when you're going to turn those piles. Um, so, you know, it, I feel very confident when I'm making a good thermophilic compost pile that I've had everything go through a hot center and I've knocked out those disease pathogens and so forth. So it's all about the process. Yeah, if we've done it right, I don't mind sticking my hands into the compost pile and then going eating french fries and licking my fingers. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I know it's okay. Now, I won't do that on, on the first turn. <laughs> I won't nope. do it on the second turn. <laughs> I'm going to wait until I know it's been dealt with. <laughs> exactly. Okay, uh, we have another question that's come in from Marco. Um, I'm interested in establishing a permaculture farm, but most of the books I'm reading are small scale. Is there, a, uh, is there in the course a way to scale up using principles of permaculture? Um, because we don't um, uh, have the credentials to have the permaculture um, on our label, uh, we're, we're gonna, um, help you go larger scale, larger scale, larger scale using biology. Usually what the permaculture um, issues are that, that need to go hand in hand with what we're doing is holding on to your water. So having swales, having places where you have the right kind of grasses growing, the right kind of plant material. So especially if you're in an arid dry, dry climate, um, every drop of dew goes back into the little pond, the little stream of um, that's forming in your swale. So we have to be really careful about water use in some places. Sometimes we have to make certain that structure is rebuilt in the soil so the fields drain properly because otherwise they get waterlogged and oxygen doesn't move through air, uh, water very well at all. Um, or we're in an arid climate where we've got to save every single drop. So we have to have the right biology in the area around that swale, that kind of riparian zone, wetland zone, to make certain that we're growing these species of plants that will help to condense water on their surfaces and increase the amount of water coming into your system. I've worked with some of the permaculture guys in um, Saudi Arabia and um, Jordan and Dubai and it, you know, we work together on these sorts of things. Um, I would probably want to ask whether this person knows Matt Powers at all and his um, permaculture um, student um, handbooks, uh, because that goes into quite a bit larger scale. So if 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 this person wants to you know, give me a a chat, I can introduce her to Matt, give her the information, or was this a him or a her? Sorry. It was Marco. Uh, um, Marco, assuming... sorry. Marco. So I'm assuming that's male. So yeah. I can give you an introduction to Matt and he'll um, work with you on scaling up. Yeah. 
it, you know, there's, I, I don't know Lynn, what your opinion is, but uh, you know, uh, to me, permaculture practices tend to foster good soil biology. Um, you know, there's a synergy there. It's not that like you have to have one and the other to make it fully work. I mean, because we use biological and more conventional style uh, farming, but I have permaculture here on my homestead and it works absolutely fantastic. So. And we work with organic people too. Um, yeah. It's just that we've got to get the organic people understanding that the tillage that they're doing is insanity. We've got to mm -hmm. stop tilling. Dude, they they love having weeds. When you till, you're promoting weeds because you're destroying the biology in the soil and you're leaving just nitrate as the form of nitrogen in that dirt. Well, yeah, you got to get the biology back in there so that you're producing adequate amount of ammonium because that's what promotes the later successional much more productive um, plant species so we we've got to do that shift you cannot till and leave your it's not going to leave your fungi intact it slices dices crushes and destroys almost a hundred percent of your fungal community especially if you're tilling 14 times a year which some of the organic folks here um, are doing and if they're going to continue doing that I'm not even going to talk to them because they're just destroying their biology faster than they're making it so we work with a lot of other people who are following other systems um, that's fine as long as they recognize that they've got to um, put the right biology in and they'll be way more successful if they in include that biological um, part of the system yeah Okay, um, it looks like we have one more question. Um, I think we have time to take it. What do you think, Elaine? Yep, absolutely. All right, so uh, this is from Francisco. It, his question is, in plots where farmers still uh, plowing, but you want to convince them to use an SFW approach, is it worth it to apply biology in a trial area even without stopping plowing or in order to prove it works? I'd try to get them to at least leave the beds intact. Don't till the beds um, so that they, they can maintain. If they want to go in and till the driving rows, I don't know why they would want to do that. But um, if they, no, no, we've got to go in and till. We're growing potatoes. We, we've got to dig a, well, okay, so you're going to dig up. Uh, and I generally potatoes, for example, I'm only going to till the hills. I'm only going to dig up those hills. I'm not going to continue in between the um, p potato plants. But if they do have to till, then immediately come in with an application of compost or put the compost down and then come in and till everything. So you're mixing that compost. You're replenishing um, the organisms as best you can as rapidly as you can and come back in with an application of uh, compost extract um, onto that soil so that you're reestablishing the biology that was just killed do you have any thoughts on that brian Keisha, um, Nick? yeah i mean whatever you can do i mean tilling is so destructive to the fungal networks um so if you can get them to do a small trial <laughs> without tilling is is preferable um, I, I'm assuming, Elaine, you'll still get maybe some benefit with more of the bacterial, um, you know, if you can get some of that established, but it's, it's depending upon the carpet growing, it's, you might get minimal or 
you know, maybe not the optimal results that you they may want to get out of a trial. I guess what I'm trying to say, yep. if they do tell. Yep. I think timing is part of it, a big part of it too, especially at the onset of a project. You know, if you have the compaction that we've been talking about, it's not always the end of the world to come in with a key line sure. or a ripper to get some oxygen back into that soil and then immediately get organisms, you know, some organic matter and plants going on that soil that has just been cultivated. Um, so I think timing is really key there where if you start in the fall or start in the spring and then you till it real heavy and there wasn't much good going on anyway, um, it's gonna take longer for that so for that biology to really create that structure and grow a healthy crop than if you were to start in the fall and give it some more time and do it properly. So, um, you know, it, it can be tough to see good results on a tilled plot uh, where there wasn't much good going on if you're starting in the spring. Yep. Yep, sounds good. Yep. Okay, uh, there was one more that, that squeezed in here, Elaine. I think <laughs> okay. it, it, it's, one it's, more. it's right on line with this, which was from Alec. Uh, can you expand on destroying the biology before they make, uh, before they make it? How much tilling can be okay? Um, well, it's like Nick was saying, sometimes when you're starting out and, you know, there's not much good biology in that soil anyway, what you want to do is come along and put down a layer of compost and gently, as gently as you can, till that into the soil. So you get all that good biology mixed in through that profile as, as deep as you can go. You know, I always, I always have to laugh at people who, two feet, that's deep. What? <laughs> um, uh, four feet four is, feet. <laughs> <laughs> that's, yeah, every once in a while we have fields though where, where you cannot possibly pull a track through a key line or a tractor, you know, chisel or, or disc plows. You just can't get it to go in deeper than two feet. So that's a really bad compaction layer and it, you're going to want to go out and put some injecting in there and um, break open some holes to the um, below uh, the compaction layer. So it, yeah, there's a lot of well, it depends on all of this. But so till the one last time. But then please don't ever till ever again if you can possibly manage it. Well, what if you're going along and you've tilled that compost in? And you come along two weeks later or a month later and you look at the soil and there's absolutely nothing, you know, there's no improvement. Biology or the, the, there's no fungi, there's no protozoa, there's no nematodes. It looks like exactly like that soil before you put the compost in, before you tilled. Nothing's improved. Well, now you've got a toxic chemical residue in that soil. And now we really need to deal with that toxic residue. And so we're going to be putting a compost extract in. Um, and so we may have to work pretty hard right at first to try to get some of these problems resuscitated, get, a, get the biology so it will start growing. And this is where that microscope becomes critically important so you know exactly where you are in getting things replenished in that soil.
So, yeah, you know, like you said, I feel like a sole detective in many cases, right, where it's I'm taking a lot of different observations, both from what I've seen in the biology, um, from what, you know, information I get from the, the farmer as far as what chemicals did they put into the soil, what was the chemical reports, and you take all those things into combination then to, to make some assessment of what the potential problems are and then how we're going to go about remediating it. You know, there's usually not just a this equals this and the, you know I, I've you know my my flow chart is planned out for me I know exactly what to do well you got to gather a lot of different types of information to make some um, observational assessments yeah just to make certain that you're being successful or you're you've moved halfway uh, along or you've only managed a quarter but it, it's better than nothing you are gonna see effects but could it be even better yeah um, you know if if you've got a a client that just won't let go of the tillage, you may have to kind of drag them out to this plot where you say, we tilled, we put the biology in here and it has returned halfway, we've got things going the right way. And look, the weeds are the wimp weak, wimpy things that aren't getting enough nutrition. They're the things that sick, not, that, not your crop plant. So why till? And yeah, you know, sometimes it can be hard to convince your clients. So hopefully year after year, they'll slowly but surely see the lesson. Maybe you can take them instead of rototilling, you could move them to disc or, or um, chisel plow, or you know, maybe if they're doing disking and um, things that disruptive, you could convince them to just harrow and a lot less disruptive as you start shifting to these less and less destructive um, ways to till or plow your soil. So maybe you could inch them along in the right direction. And then sometime, you know, five, 10 years down the line, you can kind of rub their nose in it. Well, if you had done what I said right from the very beginning, maybe not. We don't have yeah, to be yeah. petty. <laughs> exactly. But there are going to be moments Once. when you you yeah. like it. <laughs> exactly. Yep. Okay. Well, I think that is um, the Q and A that we're going to cover for today. And I, I want to thank um, for all the attendees. Thank you for, for attending this webinar and letting us uh, be able to share the Soul Food Web School and also our experiences with you. And also, I want to thank um, all the different people that made this happen. So, Mark and Wayne, thank you very much for hosting this for us. Uh, Luke and Sammy and Keisha and Casey and Nick for helping us uh, manage everything in the background. Thank you very much. Elaine, anything else you want to add before we close? I don't know. Um, just um, go check the website and um, read a lot of the stuff that's on there. And uh, hopefully you can find the animations um, and get all excited about this and um, come to the understanding that this is the way agriculture has to go. Uh, we have to stop destroying the soil as a resource. We've got to start building it back. Agreed. That's it. And Mark, anything else you want to close with before we uh, end the webinar? All right. Um, awesome. Okay, just wanted to um, add this, that the, the, the replay will be available today, later on uh, today. And you can, I'll, I'll try to get all the um, handouts for our, our, our audience on eatcommunity.com, so check that out. Um, also, thanks to everybody um, for attending, and thanks to Dr. Elaine, uh, thanks to Brian and everybody else. With everybody, 
everybody involved with Soil Food Web Foundation, uh, thanks a lot for your work, um, including uh, Casey, uh, Luke, and Nick, and I'm, I'm missing someone, Nick and Sammy. Keisha so and Sammy, yeah. yep. Right. <laughs> So everybody, um, thank you very much and look for the replay. And if you have anything else to end on, we'll say goodnight from uh, EAT community. Oh, thank you very much for uh, hosting this. Thank you. Bye-bye. Right. Bye. Bye. Have a great day. Hey, everybody. I bet you enjoyed that immensely. That was one of our most amazing presentations here at the EAT community. Please look forward to our next podcast in the very near future, and we look forward to seeing you again on the Eat Community Podcast.